Let's, uh, let's turn, please, to the fifth chapter of Nehemiah. Nehemiah 5. We've been looking at this uh, reconstruction project the last five weeks, the work of Nehemiah and his wall builders to reconstruct the uh, walls of the city of Jerusalem. But uh, in this chapter, the walls and the enemies of the wall builders recede into the background. The, uh, the concern now, the preoccupation with Nehemiah and with this chapter in his, uh, in his book is with is with something that's happening internally. The people of God are at one another's throats. As Nehemiah begins uh, this chapter, the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Now, that's, uh, that's big trouble. That's a serious problem. When a body of believers begins to break down internally, when they stop loving each other as God has called us to love one another, Jerusalem was the, uh, was the key to God's plan to bring salvation to the earth. The, the city had to be rebuilt. The walls had to be reconstructed. And uh, the enemy was try, trying to thwart and frustrate their efforts to do so. At first, he bent his efforts to, uh, uh, to bring enemies against the wall from the outside. Sanballat, the Persian governors, the provincial governors who were opposing the project. But that didn't work well because Nehemiah wasn't intimidated by, uh, by these attacks from outside. So now the enemy changes his tactic. And he goes inside the walls to stir up unrest among the people of God in order to disrupt, uh, further disrupt the project. That's Satan's way. We have to realize that the, that the enemy of this project, the, the effort that the Jews were making to rebuild Jerusalem, was not symbolic and the other Persian political officials. The real enemy was the devil, who was working behind the scenes to, to, dis, to frustrate God's efforts to bring salvation to the world. And so it is today. The real enemy is not those who oppose us from the outside, necessarily. The real enemy is, is the devil, who will bend his efforts to destroying the harmony of God's people in order to undermine the work of God. Now, that's what this chapter is all about. Now, the, 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 the wall was a problem, but the wall was not creating the problem that Nehemiah uh, refers to in this, uh, in this chapter. What had happened was this. So much manpower was being expended upon the wall, no one could work in the fields. And so people were beginning to feel a financial pinch. There are three classes of people, three types of problems that are represented in this chapter, and they're mentioned here in ascending order of severity. One group came, according to verse 2, saying, We and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order, us to eat, uh, in order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. These were the people that were spending a great deal of time working on the walls. They couldn't work in their fields, and they had large families, and they were suffering financially. Couldn't feed their families. They were saying, in effect, you can't eat a wall, Nehemiah, as important as it is. We have to have food. We have to have time in the fields. Others were saying, according to verse 3, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the... Now, the NIV has famine, but, but the word simply means dearth or lack. There's no indication that there was an actual famine. But there was a lack of food. These people were working so hard on the wall, they couldn't get their crops in the field. They had no produce to sell. They couldn't buy seed. 
to uh, sow for the next crop. And so they were having to mortgage their fields, which was a serious problem to Israelites because Israelites were given land as a permanent possession. Each family had its tribal allotment, had its family allotment. And that was considered to be permanent, permanently held. But they were having to mortgage their fields because they didn't have enough money to buy seed in order to put in next year's crop. Still others, in verse 4, were saying, We have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Uh, taxation in those days was, was, uh, was a heavy burden. The Persian uh, Empire uh, assessed uh, taxes in order to support the lavish lifestyle of the emperors and carry on their conquests. And uh, they robbed the provinces of a great deal of money. When Alexander the Great conquered Susa and he broke into the treasury, he found 340 tons of gold and 1,500 tons of silver. All of that was gathered in Susa in order to carry on the, the lavish and sumptuous lifestyle of, of the emperors. None of it, very little of it was ever returned to the provinces. And these people couldn't meet these tax assessments. They go on to say in verse 5, although we are of the same flesh and blood of and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have, to, uh, we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we're powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. They couldn't pay their taxes, so they had to mortgage their fields. When they mortgaged their fields, they had to raise more money by indenturing their families. In those days, they often used family members as collateral as well as property for loans. Now, the problem was that they were, they were being exploited by their countrymen. That's the point. Certain uh, wealthy uh, Jews, speculators in, in the community, were loaning money at interest, at, at, uh, at a, an excessive rate of, of interest. And they were exploiting the, uh, the misfortune of, of their brothers, with the result that many of them had to sell their children into slavery. And as they tell, uh, as they say in their complaint, some of our daughters have been enslaved. Our children are enslaved, which explains why the wives accompanied the men in their outcry against one another. Because it's always mothers who feel most keenly any injustice done to their children. C.S. Lewis very uh, astutely uh, observes that if your dog bites a neighbor's child, it would be far rather to uh, far better to talk to the father of the child than to talk to the mother of the child. These women were outraged because their children were being uh, enslaved, and they were being enslaved because their countrymen were exploiting uh, their misfortune. Now uh, we're told that when Nehemiah heard it, he got angry. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. Because of this abuse of law. Now, Nehemiah was the governor, as you know, and he would uh, certainly hear of their charges. And his reaction was anger. There's nothing wrong with anger. In fact, there's something wrong with us if we don't get angry at times. There are, there are things that ought to outrage us morally. Uh, Time magazine recently commented on what uh, what they referred to as indignation fatigue in the states. There's so much injustice around us that we no longer become incensed when someone's rights are being taken from them. But that wasn't true of Nehemiah. He got good and mad. 
But uh, he didn't just fly into a rage or fly off the handle. He, he, he took a moment to ponder these charges. I pondered them in my mind. He mastered his feelings and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you're exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you're selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. As Nehemiah pondered this situation, he realized that they were acting not only contrary to law, but con- uh, contrary to love, but contrary to law. Because in the Old Testament, the law prohibited loaning money to your countrymen at interest. Now, there's a reason for this. In those days, people didn't borrow money in order to uh, uh, to uh, have more capital to invest. They didn't didn't borrow money to make capital improvements on their businesses. They didn't borrow to buy property so they could sell to make a profit. That's a thoroughly modern concept. And there's nothing wrong with loaning money at interest. Jesus himself talked about a man who failed to do that. And Jesus called him very foolish. So there's nothing wrong with paying interest or or loaning money at interest. But in the Old Testament, people borrowed money because they were destitute. And uh, the law said, you you can't take advantage of your brother. If your brother is down and out, just give him the money or loan him the money. But don't charge him any interest, you see. Because that's what love demands. Just let him have the money. Don't use your brother's misfortune as a way of feathering your own nest or providing for yourself. I heard recently of, of a Christian man. He doesn't live in this area. Uh... No one would know him here, but uh, uh, another Christian friend of his got into financial difficulty and was going to have to declare bankruptcy. And this Christian man could have bought him out and saved him from bankruptcy, but he waited until he went under and filed for bankruptcy, and then he bought his property at a sheriff's sale so that he could profit from it. Now, it's that kind of activity that Nehemiah is concerned with here, exploiting a brother or a sister when they're hurting financially. Gaining, prospering, profiting personally because of someone else's misfortune. That isn't loving. And that's what was happening in Israel. They were using one another's misfortune. And that's what angered uh, Nehemiah. And so he, he called them all together. He, he first went to the, uh, to the offenders, to the lenders. And he calls them on the carpet. He faces them with their, with their sin. Now, that's a hard thing to do because these were the people with the fat wallets. These were the influential people in the community. This was the leadership. These were the nobles and the officials, the political people in the community. They held the purse strings. Uh, And according to the modern golden rule, those who have the the gold rule. These, These people were necessary for the completion of the project, or at least their finances were. And Nehemiah knew that the whole project was in jeopardy uh, if they refused to to give. And and it would be easy for him to to flinch from this task because he might offend them and the entire project would, would shut down. But he didn't. He didn't shrink. He went to them. Because he knew that there was more at stake than, than the mere building of the wall. He had to 
change something that was going on internally. And the only way to change it is to go directly to those that were creating the problem. So he goes to the lenders, and he lays this thing out before them. He says, what you're doing is not right. You know that. You know what the Old Testament says. You're in violation of the law. Now, he's not picking on them, and he's not merely going to them over something that bothers him. It's a matter of obedience to the will of God. He faces them with their disobedience. But he doesn't let it end there. Uh, He called together, uh, we're told, the the whole assembly to deal with them. And uh, he makes this very powerful and poignant plea to to the entire group. He says, look... Over the years, we've been buying back our enslaved brothers. Many Jews were were still slaves in Persia, and they had been saving money and putting together a a fund in order to buy their their indentured uh, uh, Jewish brothers out of slavery and bring them back to Judah. He says, we've been buying them back. This has been impoverishing us. Apparently, they were expending great sums of money to, to pay for their brothers and bring them back. Now he says... You're just, you see, what was happening is that they, when people couldn't pay their debts, they were taking their children and they were selling them off into slavery to recover the debt. And Nehemiah says, no, we're just going to have to turn around all of us and pay more money to those in Persia to buy our, our brothers back. In other words, you're impoverishing the whole group. You're not merely affecting your brothers, you're affecting the entire assembly. It's another indication to all of us that that when we sin, it not only affects us and our relationship to God and those that we sin against, but it, it affects the entire body. Everyone is affected by our sin. And therefore, the whole assembly was called together. So I continued. You know, and he says they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. <laughs> Conscience makes cowards of all of us. Nehemiah hit them right where they were sitting. And they knew it. They had nothing to say. So I continue. What you're doing, he says, is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? See, again, this is always the issue. When the people of God are united and when they love one another, it's a powerful witness to the community outside. The Gentiles, the non-Christians, the unchurched, the unbelievers sit up and take notice. Because unity is such a rare thing. When they see people loving each other and caring about each other, it's it's an evidence that God is at work in that group of people. I quoted last two weeks ago Paul's statement in, in Philippians that when you walk together, it's an evident sign that God is at work in you. So it's important that you stand together, he's saying. When you don't, it's a reproach to God. It reflects on his reputation. We may pray all we want to, hallowed be thy name. May the world take you seriously, is what that prayer means. May the world uh, respect and revere your name as we do. We may pray that prayer, but whenever there's a breakdown of love within the family, it always reflects upon God's name. People are always gleeful outside when church is split because it's just an evidence to them that, that we have, that, that God is not at work and therefore they have nothing to fear, you see. Nehemiah says, we're talking about something very important here. It has to do with God's reputation in the world. It's not a matter of our reputation. It's what people think of God. We've got to do something about this. We cannot overlook it. We cannot let it go on. We have to face it, even if we offend these people who are 
who are big givers to the project and who are influential politically. We've got, you've got to do something. Now, what he's doing is setting up an accountability structure for these, uh, for these nobles who were exploiting uh, their, their fellow uh, Jews, their fellow countrymen. Nehemiah was the ultimate realist. I just love this guy because he's such a wonderful blend of practicality and faith. And, you know, he understands human nature, and, and yet he's a, he's a, he's a determined uh, uh, believer in what God can do in, in, in the life of any individual. He knows that God can change these people. He believes that they mean business when they say they'll give it all back, but, but he wants the whole community surround, to surround them, to hold them accountable. Because there are some sins, and I suppose love of money is one, that are, that are, that are so deep-seated and so deeply rooted. Sometimes it takes the concerted effort of the body in order to help us deal with them. I mentioned to the salt uh, people last weekend that it seems to me that the story of the conquest of Jericho is symbolic of those sorts of deeply entrenched sins that need the concerted effort of the entire body. Jericho could have fallen if Joshua himself had walked around the city. I'm convinced it wasn't the trampling of all those feet that brought the walls down. It was God that brought them down. Why then did he bring all the people uh, uh, and every day have them march around? In Sour City on the seventh day, march around it seven times. I think it was intended to be a, an illustration to us of how we deal with certain deeply entrenched sins. Uh, Jericho was a walled city, an easily defended city, hard to bring down. And there are habits and patterns like that in our lives that need to be dealt with. And the, and the sins are so uh, so uh, uh, deeply rooted in our lives, we can't deal with them by ourselves. We need others to help us. We need someone that we can call on and say, check up on me. See if I'm doing this. See if I followed through. Because when these people gave money back to the Jews that they had defrauded, it was going to hurt. And, and, and it's all awfully easy in one setting to say, sure, we'll do it. We'll hurt ourselves financially. But then when the chips are down, our nerve fails. We can't do it. So we need someone to check up on us. And that's what Nehemiah is doing. He, he says, what, what you're doing uh, is not right. Uh, I and, and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. They had been loaning money to people that needed it, but they, he wasn't charging interest. But let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the usury you're charging them. Give it all back. The fields, the people, the interest. They were charging 1% interest per month, which was an excessive interest rate in those days. Give it all back. But they said, well, we might lose everything. We give back the fields they've pledged. We give back all the collateral. What are we going to get out of this thing? Nehemiah says, you might lose it all. It doesn't matter. Give it back. And they said, we'll, we'll do what you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised, though it cost them dearly. They did it. And the people gathered around and said, We'll support you in this conviction. And, and Nehemiah uh, 
went through a, a, a kind of symbolic act to, to seal in their mind the seriousness of what they were doing. Uh, in those days, they, you know, they wore long tunics and they wore a sash around the middle. That's where they kept their billfold and their change and their keys and, and everything else went into that sash. And he takes the sash and he shakes it out and all the pieces fly everywhere. All the things that he carried flew everywhere. And he says, God will do that to you if you don't follow through on this promise. These are hard words. Now, uh, Nehemiah is not saying those of you who belong to God may lose your salvation. Because the Old Testament, just as the New Testament teaches, that we are eternally secure. Or more properly put, we, we will persevere to the end. Those that have been truly regenerated will persevere to the end. That's the doctrine of eternal security. You'll hang in there to the very end because God will see to it that you will. doesn't mean that there won't be momentary, periodic failures of faith. But over the long haul, You'll continue to hang on because God will hang on to you. That's taught in the Old Testament and it's taught in the New Testament. What Nehemiah is saying is that if you can, can defraud and rip off your brothers and you have no remorse, no need, uh, you, you sense no need to uh, repent, then it's an indication that you don't belong to God at all. You never were in his family. Now, the, the sin itself, the sin of defrauding or exploiting a brother doesn't mean that you're not part of God's house. He's not saying that. But to refuse to repent of it, to refuse to do anything about it, to refuse to love your brother is an indication that you're not of God, you're of the evil one. So you've sided with the enemy who's trying to disrupt the harmony of God's people. So it's a very serious thing. We're inclined to think of sin in terms of the, the big ones, adultery. Murder, those sorts of things. Nehemiah puts, puts things right into focus for us. He says that the big ones are lovelessness. Any indication of lovelessness. Even on the, on, on the, on the most elementary level. See, serious business. Now, Nehemiah goes on. Uh, the, the concluding chapter, the concluding paragraph from verses 14 through 19 is... Uh, uh, Another one of these uh, personal comments that Nehemiah makes from time to time. That's why I like this book so much. Nehemiah makes these little side comments. And you can pick up so much about his personality and his character and, 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 and the intent, uh, the, 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 uh, uh, the commitment that he had to doing God's will no matter what it cost him. Listen to this. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that would be 445, that's when he first came back to uh, Jerusalem, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. He had a stipend as the governor, uh, certain entitlements that were given to political officials. He says, I waived all of that. I didn't take any of it. The earlier governors, those preceding me, that would be Sanballat, who had been the governor of, Jude, of Judah before he was displaced, and uh, Nehemiah came placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistance also lorded it over the people, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. They did not use their position in the land to speculate on real estate. They didn't make any gain. They didn't profit from the misfortune of their, uh, of their countrymen. Furthermore, it wasn't just what he didn't do, it's what he did do. 
Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from surrounding nations. So he handled all of his diplomatic obligations when, when uh, uh, emissaries were sent from other nations. He fed them. He showed them hospitality. He put them up in the, in his, in the governor's house. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every ten days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Unusual circumstances call for unusual responses on our part. It would have been all right for him to take his entitlements. But like Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, he refused uh, to take what was his. He gave up his rights because there was a greater right at stake. He, he wanted to see the city built he wanted to see his impoverished uh, countrymen get back on his feet, on their feet. He would not use their misfortune in order to further his own ambitions. He wouldn't do it. He didn't lord it over them. He didn't take their money. He gave, which is an indication of, uh, of his servant's heart. And you have this wonderful little phrase at the end, verse 19. Remember me with favor, O my God, for all I have done for these people. That sounds like a strange thing to say since he was already in God's favor, but it's the kind of, it's an indication of the sort of childlike uh, trust Nehemiah had in his father. Have you ever seen your, you know, if you go to uh, a school play where your kids are involved, you know, your kids are looking to see if, if you see them, you know, and then they wave and, they, and they're saying, see me? See what I'm doing? Aren't you proud of me? That's what Nehemiah is, is saying. Father, see what I've done. Isn't this pleasing to you? Aren't you proud of me for what I'm doing? That's all right. We can say that sort of thing. Uh, Donald Campbell, in his little commentary on Nehemiah, tells a story of a young violinist, brilliant young violinist, who gave a recital. And uh, throughout the recital, he kept, uh, when they would cheer wildly after he would play a piece, and, and but he seemed to be troubled. He would look out through the uh, through the audience and and uh, he, he wouldn't respond facially to the applause. He seemed bothered by something. He'd play another piece, and people would applaud wildly. And seemed troubled until finally he paid, played the last piece, and he looked at the back of the auditorium, and he saw that his, his mentor, his music teacher, was there. And he had a big smile on his face, and he was cheering wildly at the back of the crowd, and the violinist broke into a smile because that's what he was looking for. He didn't care. About the applause from the others, he was looking for the applause from his teacher, his mentor. That's what Nehemiah is saying. Now, who cares if, if these officials get angry? Who cares if, pe- if people in Jerusalem get mad at me because I've, I've taken this action? I'm doing it all for the Father. See, doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. What matters is what he thinks. I'm playing the game out for him. Now, what, what can we learn from this from this chapter. There are several things that, uh, that came to my mind as I read through it. The first is the importance of the church. Uh, the, the city of Jerusalem was the place where God planned to bring salvation to the world. It's described in the Old Testament as the navel of the universe. It's the center of the world. It's where everything worthwhile happening from a redemptive standpoint happened. And uh, it was crucial to God's plan to bring salvation to the world, as is the church. The, the church is the most powerful, potent agency in society. Now, that, that sounds odd to say that, because most people think of the church as utterly irrelevant. 
But they're thinking of the church in terms of uh, bingo parties and, and bridge games and, and building buildings and those sorts of things that, that, that basically are trivial pursuits, if that's all we're doing. The church is only doing what the church is supposed to be doing when God's people are living out the life of God in the world. That's what the church is. The church gathers in order to worship, to be encouraged, to be taught, to be supported, to go out into the world and be what the church is supposed to be there. People of faith and righteousness and love and humility and servanthood. And when the church acts like that, the world sits up and takes notice. That's why I say the church is the most powerful change agent in society. Paul says, the church is the ground and the pillar of reality. In other words, it is based upon reality. It is, uh, it is proclamation is one of reality. It's, it's what uh, sociologists would call the plausibility structure in society. When the church is acting as the church should act, the Christian faith seems much more plausible to people. They see that there's something there that's real, that's authentic, you see. And that's what the church ought to be. Jesus said, you, he said this to the disciples, the first church, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. Now that's set up against the backdrop of the Greek classical era and all the people you know about, Plato and Aristotle and, and uh, Socrates and, and the great thinkers and movers and shakers of, of the 6th century B.C. and on into Jesus' time. And uh, Jesus says, no, 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 you and you alone are the salt of the earth. You're the ones that, that stop the spread of corruption throughout society. And you and you alone are the light of the world. You're the source of reality. So don't, you know, don't, we should never play down our place in society. Uh, as, as the church goes, so goes society. If the church is not being the church in the world, society will decline. And any road away, our morals will erode away. You and you alone are the salt of the earth. Um, the people in the church are the key to how seriously the world takes us. We, we have to love each other. We have to take care of each other. We're responsible for each other. We have a higher obligation to one another than we do to anyone else in the world. Uh, Paul puts it this way, do good to all men especially to those who are of the household of, of faith. We have a higher obligation to our own within the family of God than we do to Christian non-Christians outside. That's what Paul is saying. And we owe love to everyone. That's an obligation that we have. That's a debt we can never discharge. We owe love to the service station attendant who takes care of our car. We owe love to the checkout clerk in the grocery store, the person who fixes our hair. The young man who mows our front yard, we, we owe love to everyone. That's an obligation that we have. But mostly, we owe love to our own. And we have to take care of them. And we can't exploit them. And we can't use them. And certainly, we can't use them for our own sake. And when we, when we see a brother or a sister who is who's out of phase with the rest of the body, who's having a hard time getting along, who's creating division. That's a very serious thing. And what we ought to do is to go directly to that person, as Nehemiah said, as Nehemiah did. 
Uh, you don't uh, talk about them to anyone else. You don't gossip about their wrongdoing. You don't call a prayer meeting to uh, name the sin and their uh, name the sinner and their sin and pray for them. You go directly to the person. If you're in a group and someone begins to gossip about another Christian, the thing to do is say, "Wait, wait! Don't don't tell me. You go tell that person. If you got a problem with them, you go to them. But it's wrong for us to gossip because it creates division in the body." And the church begins to break up into little little groups, opposing groups. They begin to be in competition with one another. And ultimately, the thing falls apart, and the name of God is at stake, you see. Now, I'm convinced that one of Satan's choice uh, uh, schemes, methodologies, is to get into the church and create dissension. If he cannot destroy us on the outside by attacks from outside, he will worm his way in. And he'll ruin us from the inside out. I read a few months ago an essay on Karl Marx's uh, methods of subversion. His theory was that uh, subtle subversion is always better than sudden takeover. And that has been communist philosophy from the very beginning. Marx said the first thing to do is to get in, to, to infiltrate a group. He called that worming in. The next thing to do is to indoctrinate. He called that softening up. And the third thing to do is to liberate, which is his way of saying taking over. And when I read that, I thought, now Karl Marx wasn't smart enough to think that up. And anyway, that doesn't sound original at all. The communists weren't the first ones to think of that. That's been Satan's scheme from the very beginning, to subvert subtly. From the inside out, he infiltrates, and he finds agents, willing agents. And usually it's immature Christians, young Christians, sometimes young in the faith. You know, they, they, they come from outside into the church, and they, they haven't learned yet that there are different ways and modes of handling problems. And they handle them the same old way. You know, if they get overlooked, they begin to complain, or if they're not taken seriously, they go begin to talk about the person or criticize uh, someone to someone else about the way they've been treated. And, 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 and they find themselves in the lap of the evil one. But what do you do when you find a, a, a young, struggling, immature Christian in a situation like that? Well, you, you do what Jesus said to do. You go get him. You know, in Matthew 18, it says, If your brother sins, you go to your brother. If he won't hear you, you take two or three. If you won't hear the two or three, you tell it to the church. And the whole church appeals to them, as, as Nehemiah did uh, in his day. You got the whole church, the whole group, to appeal to these people, you say. Well, what we forget is that those instructions are in the context of the story of the 99 sheep and the one that was lost. The, the person who is spreading dissension and division in the church is a little lost sheep. That's what he is. And Jesus in that story was not talking about going out and fetching non-Christians. He was talking about salvaging uh, uh, an immature young Christian who's struggling. The one who's lost. You go get them and you bring them back because they're weak. They don't know how to act. They're lost. So you don't bludgeon them. The, the, the shepherd doesn't go out with a staff and start wrapping the sheep over the head. You go get them and you bring them back and you win them back, you see. You treat them tenderly, and you treat them with love. But you go, and you confront them so they can be saved. And, and as, uh, as Jesus put it, he had come to seek and to save the lost. And then 
He enjoins us, or He encourages us, to do the same for others. You see, that's what happened in Nehemiah's day. The community began to break down because some believers were exploiting other believers. Nehemiah said, this has got to come to an end. No matter what it costs, it's got to come to an end. And he moved in on it. And the church was spared. Now, that's what we must do. Because very often we're attacked, not only from without, but from within. So we need to go and rescue those that have become the dupes of Satan. They have for a time become the enemies of, of the gospel. Now, if we go to someone and they, uh, they won't hear us, and we take two or three and they still won't hear us, and then we take, tell it to the church and they won't hear the church, Jesus said, look, look upon them as a tax collector and sinner. Now, what he said is that you have to look at that person as a non-Christian. Because if someone can go on in an unloving way without taking care of a brother or sister and they have no desire to change... They are probably not Christians, which is exactly the way Nehemiah ended his entreaty. It's a very serious thing. Uh, John puts it like this in 1 John 3. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. That's the message. If you want to hear the message in a nutshell, that's it. Love one another. Don't be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. You say, oh, I'd never murder my brother, but we might assassinate his character. We might ruin his reputation. And when we do so, and we continue to do so, and we are not repentant, as Cain was not, though God tried to draw Cain back repeatedly. He wouldn't listen, wouldn't hear, John says, because he was the evil one. See? He had become a committed agent for the subversive... Uh, 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 efforts of Satan. Now, uh, why do we do all this? Well, because our Lord sees. Because He knows. We do it for Him. Not for anyone else. It's for His sake. That's always the motivation behind any activity. Uh, it's not a mere matter of screwing up our courage and trying harder. It's not a mere matter of obedience to law. We do it because God sees and knows. We live in His house. We operate under His purview. And uh, we do it because He's the Father, you see. I always get a kick out of these, these uh, professional football players on television. When the camera pans the sidelines and it focuses on the face of one of these players. And there they are with uh, two or three days of stubble. Uh, beard on their on their face with a face only a mother or a father could love and uh, they turn into the camera and they say hi mom hi dad usually it's hi mom i've never quite figured that one out but it's hi mom and you know the assumption behind that is that mom is sitting there watching she's watching and she's cheering him on now that's what we need to understand god is is cheering us on to victory he wants us to do what what will build and mold and, and, and create a body that, that has a, an influence and impact upon the world. He sees. He knows what you're doing. He's for you. And what we do, we do for him. So let's take this very seriously. This is serious business. We're not playing for nickels and dimes. This is serious business that we, the church, are engaged in. And when we see ourselves acting in ways that disturb the love of the body, we need to judge ourselves. And if we see others doing it, 
We need to move in with the kind of loving and yet forthright, uh, in the the loving and forthright manner in which Nehemiah went about his task and win our brother back. Let's pray. Now let's take a moment to to judge our own hearts. If there has been a, a critical or unloving attitude toward anyone in this body or any other Christian in our community, would you... Would you call that what God calls it? It's sin, pure and simple. And we really can't justify it or, or defend it in any way. Perhaps they did something that was very wrong. But your attitude is, has been one of resentment or bitterness and it needs to be judged. Will you do that? Just between you and God. And then will you commit yourself... To go and set things right. As Jesus put it, if you bring your your offering to the altar and you have something against your brother, leave your leave your offering. Don't bother to sacrifice it. Go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and make your offering. So will you will you follow that order of things and determine in your heart that you're going to go and set things right no matter what it costs? And then if you personally know of a brother or a sister that is acting in a way that's creating distress within the body, causing disharmony, disunity, will you consider being the one to go and talk to them? If you've seen it, if it's a friend of yours, then then it, it, it's your task. And will you ask God to give you the courage to to follow through. And then as a congregation, let's ask the Lord to give us an authentic love for each other that lasts and puts up with any kind of uh, mischief or, or wrongdoing on the part of others. No matter how much we've been wronged, let's love one another as God has loved us. Father, we want you to use this church in order to reach our community. And we know that it will not be done by slick advertising or, or Madison Avenue promotion, but it's going to be done as Christians go out from here living righteously and, and humbly and being men and women of faith and uh, people who love each other fiercely. We want that to be true of us. We, we want... We want to be known as your people who reflect your your character, not for our sake or our reputation, but for yours. We pray that people would be drawn to this church because they sense here a, a, a spirit of love and concern for others. Help us to be alert to people in need among us, and rather than, than exploit them or ignore them, help us to, to give the kind of practical help that they need. And uh, as, as the unchurched, non-Christians come in, Lord, help us to extend to them uh, uh, the love of Christ and help them to sense that there's a warmth and a love here that they could never find outside. We know this is, this is possible because your spirit is here indwelling us. And that all we are and all we have comes from him. We thank you for that. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.